Good morning, VRVC, once again, uh, to you who are joining us online and to you who are here. What, uh, what a privilege it is to, to launch week two of this series called Odd Couples. Uh, one of the things that we celebrate is the, the, the creativity of our Savior Jesus, who, as we talked about last week, creates a new people. Uh, he takes uh, Jews and Gentiles. He takes people who are at odds with one another, and he creates these odd couples, this new unity. And uh, th- today we want to talk about uh, a relationship, a friendship, if you will, that on paper doesn't seem to make sense. And yet through the power of covenant love, as we're going to see, uh, it, it does happen, and it's beautiful to watch. Uh, the two women are Ruth and Naomi, and I want to read to you a portion of their story from uh, the Old Testament book of Ruth. Uh, We're going to read Ruth chapter 1, verses 6 to 18. So hear the word of the Lord. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have... Any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to two sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. God bless the reading of this word. So I want to jump into this sad, powerful, hopeful story. And just a little bit of background, I want you to meet a married couple Uh, They're Jewish, their names are Elimelech and Naomi. They live in Bethlehem, later to become the hometown of King David, and still later the birthplace of Jesus of Nazareth. The word Bethlehem, Beth, means house in Hebrew. Lechem means bread. It's the house of bread, but uh, tragically, the house of bread, Bethlehem, has had a famine. And so, not saying it was the right decision, but Elimelech, and Naomi chose to pack up their two boys and their belongings and head to a neighboring country called Moab. You know, if you were standing in the plains of Bethlehem looking due east on a clear day, 
you could see in the distance the mountains of Moab. Geographically, in other words, the country of Moab was pretty close. But spiritually speaking, Moab was far away. Well, the family uh, gets to Moab, and uh, the two boys, Malon and Kilion, marry local Moabite girls, each no doubt who've grown up worshiping uh, the god of the Moabites, Chemosh, and, uh, and then tragedy strikes all the men in the family. Daddy Elimelech dies, and then so do Malon and Kilion. It leaves a widowed mother-in-law, Naomi, and her two widowed daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. Now, in that culture especially, and in many cultures around the world today, what Naomi went through, I mean, she lost everything. I mean, she lost her joy. She lost her livelihood. She lost her income. She lost her dream of seeing the family line extended. She lost it all. And if you freeze the frame right here, where you've got Naomi over here, and you have her daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth over here, Naomi, in a way, could not be more different from her daughters-in-law. They belong to different generations. They've grown up in two different lands, two different countries, two different cultures. They, 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 their people worship different gods. And, and can I be honest about something? Um, mothers-in-laws and daughters-in-laws don't always have the greatest of relationships, right? Um, maybe they're just a bit possessive over that boy. And uh, they have very different ideas about his favorite meatloaf recipe. I don't know. But anyway, they, uh, it's just not always the, the, the most peaceful of, of relationships. Now, there are many wonderful exceptions for which we praise God. But, but, but in the case of, of, of Naomi and her daughters-in-law, you, you could almost say that the main thing that had been gluing them together was the wedding license. And now the wedding license had been, in a sense, nullified by the death certificate. Have you ever seen like a really old envelope with a really old stamp and that old glue is kind of starting to come loose from the envelope? Here's the question. What, what do we do when earthly adhesive begins to lose its stickiness? What happens when earthly covenants are dissolved. Well, as we'll see, that's, what, that, that's kind of the situation for Naomi and her, her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. But you may have already noticed the book is not named Orpah. The book is named Ruth. And as I've studied this story, which is one of my favorites in the Old Testament, by the way, I, I've been trying to figure out how this pairing of a daughter-in-law named Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, how it kind of defies expectations. Despite all that would naturally separate them, they're drawn together by God. And as I've studied this passage, as I've looked at their stories, it seems to me like two questions undergird uh, this whole passage. And I'm calling them two sticky questions. These, these questions have Velcro on them. Uh, these questions, when we take them seriously, have the potential to kind of glue us together to people that we might never naturally, normally seek out to be in relationship with, in friendship with, in life. 
And as we know and as we've talked about so far, whenever we experience that supernatural unity, relationships that don't work on paper but yet are, are deep because of, of God, it, it sends a message to our world. It's a miracle that people see and, and are amazed by. And so the first question I want us to look at is this, and that's the question, what if the hand of God is writing our story? What if God's hand is writing your story, my story? You see, one of the most important questions we'll ever ask in life is who's the playwright of your story? Who's the playwright of my story? I know that I'm treading upon really complicated questions about free will and God's power, and and I understand there's such a deep mystery, but I can tell you there have been so many times in my life where I thought I was writing uh, the screenplay, and it just didn't work out. What if the hand of God is writing our story? That that was something that stood out to me in this text, the the hand of God. And by the way, I I realize that as I've preached on this passage before, in my judgment, in previous sermons, I've been a little too harsh on Naomi. Naomi, her name means pleasant. Uh, But you may know that if you've studied the book, that later she changes her name to Mara, a word which means bitter. And I think in times past, I said, well, man, she's bitter, right? Uh, and she is. Uh, but, but can you blame her? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, she goes from famine in Bethlehem to losing her husband to losing both of her sons. I, I think we should cut Naomi a whole lot of slack. Right? Um, now, I don't agree with all of her actions necessarily. I don't agree with all of her words. But, but what struck me was that even in her discouragement, even in what was likely depression and anger and despair. Did you notice this? Naomi never gives up her faith in God. To put it differently, she never stops believing that the hand of God is moving in her life. I want you to look at verse six. Verse six says, when Naomi heard in Moab, she's in Moab, that the Lord had come to the aid of his people back in Bethlehem, By providing food for them, she and her daughter-in-law prepared to return home from there. Literally, it says, when Naomi had heard in Moab that the Lord had visited his people, that the hand of the Lord was still active. I I think this is fascinating. In, In all of her bitterness, Naomi still believes that God is at work, God still moves, God is still active, even in the painful chapters of life, maybe even uh, especially in the painful chapters of our life. Still later, when, when Naomi is trying to convince her daughters-in-law to go back to Moab, she makes what to our ears sounds like such a strange argument. She says, in essence, girls, do you really want to wait for me to find a new husband, even if I found one today? And then do you, do you want to wait until I get pregnant and have two boys? And then do you want to wait for them to grow up so that at their senior prom, uh, they're bringing 40-year-old women to their dates to their senior I mean, do you really want to wait so that I can be your mother-in-law again? No, no, no. It's not going to work. And then what does she say in verse 13? She says, would you remain unmarried for them? Would you wait for these future hypothetical sons? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. I'm telling you, I find this fascinating. She continues to believe in the active power of the hand of God, 
even when she believes that God's turning his hand against her, which, by the way, uh, when you read the rest of the story, uh, she gets a different perspective on that. Now, here's why I find this fascinating, because I think that you and I live in a day that when people uh, with maybe some faith go through hard times, they often take that suffering as evidence that God doesn't exist. Or, Or maybe, at the very least, they turn their face away from God. But even when Naomi felt like the hand of the Lord was writing this painful chapter in her life, even when she was taking it personally, she still believed in God. Friends, what if? What if the hand of God is writing your story and writing my story? A few months ago, I was able to... uh, participate in a, in a five-day seminar on something that I think five or ten years ago wouldn't have caught my eye, uh, but in this season of life really did. And the seminar was on the topic of pastors and grief. Uh, it looked at grief from so many different angles. Personal grief. Grief in the pew. Grief in the pulpit. Right? Uh, grief in our nation. Grief in the Bible. And one of the things that just stuck out to me over and over again through our leaders of the seminar was that how much they talked about deep faith and deep grief, how they can go together. In fact, one of our leaders relayed a story uh, from the Nobel Prize winning author Elie Wiesel. Maybe some of you have read Elie Wiesel before. When he was 15 years old, this is him, uh, he was a prisoner at Auschwitz. And one day he watched as three fellow prisoners, all three rabbis, put God on trial. I know those words sound strange to hear. They definitely caught me off guard. But these rabbis could not make sense of how God would allow the Holocaust to happen. And so they had a trial. And they tried God for breaking his covenant. Uh, And they found God guilty, or there's some dispute whether they found him guilty or whether they um, uh, felt like God owed them something for showing indifference to the suffering of his people. And here they're having this trial, and and God's case is not going well. And then all of a sudden, one of the rabbis stops and says, brothers, we must conclude the trial. And they said, why? And he said, it's time for evening prayer. It jolted me, this story. Sounds strange. And yet, if you read about Abraham or Job or Jeremiah or Jesus on the cross, it sounds like biblical faith. Even when we're struggling, even when we're suffering, even when we don't know what God is up to, even when in human wisdom it seems like God has failed us, we still look for his hand. We still trust the hand of God to lead us. We still realize that God is writing our story. I I can't prove this, but I wonder if Naomi's deep faith in the midst of her grief had a big impact on Ruth, who was watching it all. Friends, what if God is writing our story? And what if he's doing it on cloudy days as well as sunny days? 
What if he's writing it indelibly in dark chapters as well as in pleasant chapters? And what if God is bringing into your life and my life people that we might not choose? (laughs) What if God is bringing people that are different from us, maybe even bringing people that uh, annoy us or discourage us? Maybe as you were reading uh, the, the growth guide this week, you were struck by that mystery in Ephesians 1.11. In, in him and God we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You see, if we believe that God is writing the story, then we will have to confess that we can't be Lord of our lives. We can't be the playwright. We'll have to trust that God has a plan. We'll have to believe that even when life feels absurd and dark and meaningless, that God is still working out his purposes. What if the hand of God is writing our story? And then a second question. What if the heart of God is gluing us together? When all earthly adhesive loses its stickiness, what if God's heart, what if God's love is gluing us together? You see, I not only noticed the hand of God in this passage, I also got a beautiful glimpse of the heart of God. And to me, it's seen very clearly in verse eight, what Naomi says to her her daughters-in-law. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home, And then she says, may the Lord show kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord show kindness. I bet there's a good chance if you've been suffering under my preaching for a long time or maybe if you've ever been to a wedding I've officiated, you've probably heard me note that this Hebrew word kindness, really important, It's a Hebrew word called hesed, if you were spelling it out in your notes, H-E-S-E-D. If you're trying to pronounce it and show off to your friends, you would say hesed, and you have to kind of spit a little bit uh, to be be authentic. Uh, But but hesed is an interesting word. In fact, when the, the translators of the King James Bible came to it, they actually had to take two English words and stick them together to translate it. They took the word loving, and they took the word kindness, and they made a new word, loving kindness, and that's how they translated Hesed, or sometimes it's just kindness, or, or maybe your translation says steadfast love. I, I like the, um, the translation that, that says stubborn love. Hesed is stubborn love. It's this commitment to keep showing loyalty to someone, to keep on loving them, to keep on showing kindness to them, even when that love is not necessarily reciprocated. And this is the heart of God toward us. And isn't it interesting that in all her despair and discouragement, Naomi prays that love for Ruth and Orpah. And I think Ruth is going to take that love to a whole new level. So I want to pick it up in this critical scene in verse 14. Naomi is releasing her daughters-in-law. You're free from obligation to me. You're free to go back to Moab. That sounds Strange, I don't know, agree with her, but she says, go back to your old gods. Sounds really weird. Uh, go back, find new husbands. And the first one to respond is Orpah. Verse 14, it says, at this day the daughters-in-law wept aloud. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung to her. Orpah, who'd already spoken 
words of honor to Naomi. She'd already said, we'll go with you. Now she kisses Naomi goodbye and she leaves. Isn't it interesting that she honors her with her words. She honors her with her kisses. But with her feet, she walks away. I wonder if she was doing this mental calculation, this mental calculation that we all do, (laughs) who says, if I stay here, I'm sentencing myself to a life of bitterness. Is that what I want for my life? And so she kind of says in her mind, you know, let me hug your neck. I I love you. I wish you all the best. But life's too short. (laughs) And I got to think about me and I'm out of here. Isn't that the temptation? To say all the right things about God. But when there's a chance to prove our faith, we walk. But Ruth does something different, doesn't she? Her sister-in-law kisses Naomi, but Ruth clings to her. Really important word. It's a covenant kind of word. We first find it in Genesis 2, in the Garden of Eden, where God is unveiling the miracle of marriage. And it says a man will leave his father and mother and will cling or cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The husband and wife, they'll maintain their individuality, but they'll create a new kind of covenant relationship in marriage. It's one thing to kiss and say goodbye, as Orpah does. It's quite another thing to profess your love, not just with your words and your tears, but with your feet. Ruth clings to Naomi. Why? I think it's because she found God through Naomi, and she says, I want to stay with you, and I want to stay with God. And so in verse 16, she says, in essence, don't don't make me leave you. Don't make me break my commitment to you. I'm sticking with you. Once again, if you've ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, maybe you've seen that I like to use Ruth 1.16 in the wedding vows. It's kind of a, a joint vow that I have a couple say to each other. And, and I point out, it's, you know, it's kind of interesting because it doesn't come from a, a wedding in the Bible. It comes from a daughter-in-law and a mother-in-law. And yet I think it, it reflects that kind, of, uh, that kind of hesed commitment that God leads us to make. And I have the couple say it to each other line by line and they always kind of look at me and say, don't look at me. And I look at each other and say it to each other. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God, isn't that interesting? Right? I mean, it's one thing for a beautiful bride and a beautiful groom to say that to each other on their wedding day. It's quite another thing for a daughter-in-law to say it to her mother-in-law, a woman broken by life, filled with grief. But is that not the essence of Hesed love? Where you go, I'll go. I'm not going to ghost you. If I commit myself to you, if I commit myself to friendship, to serve you, I'm gonna follow through. Where you stay or where you lodge, I will stay, I will lodge. The word in the Hebrew has more of the sense of camping (laughs) than it does, you know, sleeping in a king-sized bed in a McMansion, okay? It's like, I'll camp out with you, I'll follow you. Your people, all your crazy relatives, they're my people now. And most importantly, your God is my God. 
the God of unconditional, stubborn love. Isn't it interesting, uh, as, as one commentator points out, isn't it interesting that, that just, you know, right after Naomi had said, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me, Ruth's hands are clinging to Naomi in fierce love. Paul Miller says that Ruth is the face of God to Naomi in that moment. I'm not gonna let you go. Now look, I know that you're not God, I certainly know I'm not God, but what if through our stubborn love, we could show somebody a glimpse, just a glimpse of God's hesed love. Not air kisses, not manufactured tears, not words we don't mean, but the fierce grip of love. Ruth goes even further in verse 17. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you from me. What's he saying? She says, when we get to Bethlehem, let's go to the funeral home. Let's, you know, we'll have to do it with a credit card, but let's get two plots. We don't have any money, but let's get two plots right next to each other because I'm committing myself to you. I believe God has led me to commit myself to you. Now, one commentator I thought made a really fascinating observation. He says, you know, Ruth is from Moab. Moab, the people of Moab, actually descended from Abraham's nephew, a guy named Lot. And Lot had a very dubious spiritual legacy. Lot chose to leave the promised land because literally the grass was greener on the other side. Lot, you might say, thought he could live his best life now. And he left Canaan, he left the land of promise. But Ruth, who biologically is a descendant of Lot, what does she do? reverses that spiritual immaturity on the part of her ancestor. She actually makes the journey back to Canaan, back to Judah, back to the land of promise, more importantly, back to the God of Abraham. Friends, what if, what if God is gluing us together in friendship? What if God is calling us to live according to his promise. What if the secret of life is less about how green the grass is on the other side, but how I can pursue God and the people that he's leading me toward? Even if it's an odd couple, especially if it's an odd couple, God writes new new stories. Now, if you've read to the end of the book of Ruth, which by the way, I encourage you to do so, you know that that's exactly what God did. God wrote a whole new story. God wrote a whole new genealogy for Ruth because she would marry a man named Boaz, which is this incredible love story, and she would come to be remembered no longer as the great, 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 great granddaughter of Lot, but as the mother of Obed, as the grandmother of Jesse, as the great grandmother of King David, and as the great, 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 great grandmother of King Jesus. I wonder, I wonder if God is putting someone in your mind. Maybe you don't have a whole lot in common with them. Maybe, to be honest, if you were picking friends in a draft, they wouldn't be your first pick. 
They wouldn't be your number one overall draft pick. But somehow you sense through the Holy Spirit that the hand of God is bringing you together. Is the Lord putting someone like that in your mind's eye? If so, what would it look like for you to show Hesed love and friendship to them? Is it somebody you need to even reach out to before the day is over? Is it time to renew a commitment to a family member, coworker, friend, where the adhesive of earthly love has been, has been fading? What if, what if God is choosing you to live out your stubborn faith and stubborn love even in the difficult chapter of your life right now? I'll close with this. In the 1920s, uh, as you may be aware, there were leaders in the Soviet Union who were trying to write God out of the story of their nation. There was actually a group that was formed, and they called themselves the League of Militant Atheists. I guess atheists with guns. And um, there's actually a cover of a magazine from 1929 which shows two workers, I don't know if you can see this, but these are two workers members of the League of Militant Atheists who are dumping Jesus out of, a wheel, out of a wheelbarrow. Can you see this? We're just gonna get rid of Christianity, they said. We're just gonna get rid of Jesus. But guess what? They could try to get rid of Jesus, but Jesus decides otherwise. On the cross, Jesus clings to his steadfast love for you and for me. Jesus, as a perfect human son of God, makes odd couples with sinful people like you and me. In fact, the leader of the League of Militant Atheists grew very frustrated by their efforts. As much as they tried to get rid of Jesus, it wasn't working. And this leader, Yemelian Yaroslavsky, he, he, he summed it up this way, his frustration. Uh, all that persecution, and yet Christianity was still strong and growing. And he said this, he said, Christianity is like a nail. He said, the harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. What a prayer, friends, that our faith would be like a nail, regardless of the pain. We would trust that the hand of God is still moving. We would trust that the love of God is still at the heart of life. We would trust that the nails of Jesus did not extinguish his love for us on the cross. The harder they struck Jesus, the deeper his love for you and me. May that be true among us to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, we're we're awed by this picture of these two widows clinging to each other and clinging to you in faith. At the time, Lord, they've got nothing, nothing except faith that your hand is active and that your love is deep. Lord, you know your people who are here today and so you know each heart. You know those who are going through uh, dark chapters and struggles. You know those whose faith is weak. 
Uh, Lord, you know those that you're, you're prompting right now in different ways to show your steadfast love. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. Thank you for Hesed love. And deepen our love for one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.